Hello, free thinkers. I'm Mickey Z, and I welcome you to Post Woke, the New York City-based podcast where we practice intellectual self-defense. This episode is going to go live in the general area of March 17th, a.k.a. St. Patrick's Day. And when I was younger, St. Patrick's Day was, was a big deal in my household. I have some Irish in me, and my mom was very proud of that heritage. And her dad, who had the bulk of the Irish in him, lived in the same building as us. So he would come up to visit. My mom would make corned beef and cabbage. Sometimes we'd go to the parade. We would listen to Irish music, watch John Wayne's movie, Quiet Man. And basically, it was. I even went to St. Patrick's Grammar School, so it was a big deal for a while. Over time, it became more about memories than commemoration. But I did happily learn that the name St. Patrick's has a radical angle to it, and that's what I'd like to share with you today. And I promise this will not be a dry or boring history lesson. In fact, I'd be very curious to know how many of you even heard of this story before this this podcast episode. So it begins during the buildup to the Mexican-American War, which seemed inevitable by the early 1840s. And at that time, scores of immigrant Irishmen joined the U.S. Army because they were paying $7 a month. And it was not easy to be an immigrant Irishman at that time. They were not exactly the most beloved or respected Americans. In fact, the anti-immigrant press often caricatured the Irish with simian features and portrayed them as unintelligent and drunk and charging that they were seditiously loyal to the Pope. But cheap Irish labor, of course, was welcome. And Irish maids became as familiar as women of color nannies are today. Now, the harsh treatment that Irish men faced did not end when they enlisted into the armed forces. They were often harassed and beat up by Anglo soldiers. Eventually, President James Polk incited hostilities by sending U.S. troops into disputed territories. And many of these Irish soldiers suddenly found themselves heading west to fight a war of conquest. The American army at that time, as Howard Zinn explains, was made up of volunteers, not conscripts, lured by money and opportunity for social advancement via promotion in the armed forces. Translation, their patriotism was not very strong. Also, many of the Irish, in fact, most of them were Catholic, and they resented the treatment of Catholic priests and nuns by the invading Protestants in the military. A lot of the Irish soldiers that deserted did so because of the anti-Catholic, anti-foreigner movement. One such prominent deserter was named John Riley. He's an Irish man from um, Galway who deserted by swimming across the Rio Grande after asking permission to go to mass. As the U.S. Army marched through Mexico's northern deserts, other Irishmen followed, and Riley became the captain of a 200-member rogue column in the Mexican army. At a Mexican convent, the nuns presented Riley and his men with a hand-stitched banner. It's been described as being made of green silk. On one side was a harp with the Mexican coat of arms and a scroll on which is painted the words, in Spanish, Liberty for the Republic of Mexico. Underneath the harp is the Irish motto, Erin Gobra, which means Ireland forever. On the other side of the banner was a painting made to represent St. Patrick's, St. Patrick, who was holding a key in his left hand and in his right hand, a staff resting upon a serpent. 
Now, the group was unofficially known as the Irish Volunteers, but the Mexicans referred to the red-headed and ruddy-complexioned men as the Red Guards. Formerly, the unit was called the San Patricio Company, a title that evolved into the more familiar St. Patrick's Battalion. In five major battles, St. Patrick's Battalion earned a reputation for bravery that peaked on August 20th, 1847, where over the course of three hours, 60% of the Irish battalion were killed or captured by a numerically superior American army. One of the prisoners was John Riley. At their court-martial, most of the St. Patrick's Battalion said they had been forced to desert by the Mexicans or they had too much to drink. I mean, they needed an excuse. They couldn't just say, I hated the United States, so they said they weren't responsible. In some cases, including with Riley, this, this defense was actually effective. While 50 San Patricios were sentenced to death, five others were pardoned and 15 others received a reduced sentence. Riley himself was given 50 lashes and was hot iron branded with a two-inch letter D for deserter. The San Patricios who faced the gallows were hanged in their Mexican uniforms and buried in graves dug by Riley and other branded prisoners. The war was over, and in the name of historical cleansing, the legend of St. Patrick's Battalion was essentially forgotten north of the border. The same cannot be said for Mexico, where there is even a San Patricios public school. On the 150th anniversary of the execution of some members of the St. Patrick's Battalion, the president of Mexico at the time, Ernesto Zedillo, commemorated that day at a ceremony in Mexico City at precisely the place where the hangings were staged. Also, Irish president at the time, Mary Robinson, was a host of a celebration in Dublin to honor the battalion. Both countries issued commemorative postage stamps at the time, and to this day, a plaque is still hanging in San Jacinto Plaza in Mexico City to honor the St. Patrick's Battalion. In 1997, President Zedillo called the desertions an act of conscience and said the men listened to the voice of justice, dignity, and honor and joined Mexican patriots who faced an aggression that lacked any justification. Thus, in memory of all the people who have faced aggressions that lacked any justification, I want to wish everyone a happy St. Patrick's Day 2022. Obviously, the media played a very large role in the story I just told you. And of course, the media continues to play a major role in how world events and military aggressions are played out to this day. So when we come back after a word from our sponsor, I'm going to talk to you a little bit more about how the media was even further co-opted starting in about the mid-20th century. So hang on. We'll be right back. Hey, Mickey Z here with a few messages before we get back to the show. I'm asking you to become a paid subscriber to Post Woke. To do so, it's very simple. Just go to mickeyz.substack.com. The link is in the show notes. And there, for just $5 a month, less than 17 cents a day, you can support what I'm doing and get a steady flow of podcasts, articles, and other content, including perks that are available 
only to paid subscribers. So I thank you in advance for making that commitment. It really makes a difference. In addition, if you'll scroll through, scroll through the show notes, you'll see that I have a link in there for the project I do to help homeless women in New York City. Your support is most welcome. There's a link in there for a very cool post-woke podcast t-shirt to let people know what your favorite podcast is. And there's also a link in there for my NFT digital art photography. If you're interested in non-fungible tokens as a collectible, please click that link, check it out, and maybe, maybe buy yourself a collectible work of art. So on that note, thank you again. And most importantly, please consider becoming a subscriber at mickeyz.substack.com. And now let's get back to the show. In 1948, a man named Frank Wisner was appointed as the director of the Office of Policy Coordination for the Central Intelligence Agency. This was an espionage and counterintelligence branch of the CIA. Weisner was specifically told to create an organization that concentrated on, quote, propaganda, economic warfare, preventative direct action, including sabotage, anti-sabotage, demolition and evacuation measures, subversion against hostile states, including assistance to underground resistance groups, and support of anti communist elements in threatened countries of the free world." Close quote. Later that year, Weisner established something called Operation Mockingbird, a program to directly influence the domestic American media. Weisner recruited Philip Graham, the renowned owner of the Washington Post. Graham was to run the project within the industry, and he recruited others who had worked for military intelligence during World War II. By the early 1950s, Wisner and the CIA owned respected members of the New York Times, Newsweek, CBS, and countless other communications vehicles. One of the most important journalists under the control of Operation Mockingbird was Joseph Alsop, whose articles appeared in over 300 different newspapers. Now, it's hard in 2022 to gauge the importance of that, but if you wrote articles that appeared in over 300 newspapers in the 1950s, it was the equivalent of being viral today. In other words, everybody heard what you had to say and was influenced by it. Other prominent media figures willing to promote the views of the CIA included Stuart Alsop of the New York Herald Tribune, Ben Bradley of Newsweek, James Rustin of the New York Times, Walter Pincus of Washington of Washington Post, Walter Winchell of the New York Daily Mirror, and Drew Pearson and Walter Lippmann of the Chicago Daily News. And that is a very incomplete list. These journalists and many others sometimes wrote articles that were directly commissioned by Weisner and the CIA. The CIA also provided them with classified information to help them with their work. Now, in 1977, Carl Bernstein of Watergate fame wrote an infamous article called The CIA and the Media for Rolling Stone magazine. This is back when Rolling Stone still had an iota of integrity left. At the time, Bernstein detailed how American journalists had secretly carried out assignments for the Central Intelligence Agency according to documents on file at CIA headquarters. 
Some of these journalists' re relationships with the agency were tacit, some were explicit. There, were, there was cooperation, accommodation, and overlap. Journalists provided a full range of clandestine services, from simple intelligence gathering to serving as go-betweens with spies in communist countries. Reporters shared their notebooks with the CIA. Editors shared their staffs. Some of the journalists were Pulitzer Prize winners and distinguished reporters. The CIA documents Bernstein referred to highlight how journalists in the field were used to help recruit and handle foreigners as agents. They also acquired and evaluated information and planted false information with officials of foreign governments. Many of these journalists signed secrecy agreements, pledging to never divulge anything about their dealings with the agency. Some signed employment contracts. Some were assigned case officers and treated with unusual deference. Others had less structures, structured relationships with the agency, even though they performed similar tasks. They were briefed by the CIA personnel before trips abroad, debriefed afterward, and used as intermediaries with foreign agents. Appropriately, the CIA uses the term reporting to describe much of what cooperating journalists did for the agency. The most valuable CIA media asset was, and perhaps still is, the New York Times. The newspaper's late publisher, Arthur Hayes Sulzberger, provided assistance to the CIA whenever possible. CIA officials cite two reasons why the agency's working relationship with the Times was closer and more extensive than with any other paper. The Times maintained the largest foreign news operation in American daily journalists, and there were close personal ties between the men who ran both institutions. Please allow me to repeat that. There were close personal ties between the men who ran the New York Times and the Central Intelligence Agency. For a clear idea of how such a cozy arrangement between policy setters and agenda setters worked, please allow me to tell you what happened in Guatemala in the early 1950s. In a landslide victory, a man named Jacobo Arbenz was freely and fairly elected president of Guatemala in 1951. Wishing to transform his country, Arbenz installed modest reforms and he legalized the Communist Party in his country. This was frowned upon in American business circles. For among many, many other resources, Guatemala was known as the primary source of bananas for the United States. So the Arbenz government became the target of a U.S. public relations campaign backed by media bought and sold by the CIA. Two years after Arbenz became president, Life magazine, owned and run by a man named Henry Luce, who was a CIA operative and also owner of Time magazine. Life magazine featured a piece on his quote-unquote red land reforms, claiming that a nation just two hours bombing time from the Panama Canal was openly and diligently toiling to create a communist state. It matters little that the USSR didn't even maintain dipl diplomatic relationships with Guatemala. The Cold War was in full effect. Ever on the lookout for that invaluable pretext, 
the U.S. business class scored a public relations coup when Arbenz expropriated some unused land controlled by United Fruit Company. There's the aforementioned bananas come into play. His payment offer was predictably deemed inappropriate. The Secretary of State at the time, John Forster Dulles, clarified, if they gave a gold piece for every banana, the problem would still be communist infiltration. The CIA put a little something called Operation Success into action. A legally elected government was overthrown by an invasion force of mercenaries trained by the CIA at military bases in Honduras and Nicaragua and supported by American fighter planes flown by American pilots. Operation Success ushered in 40 years of repression, caused more than 200,000 deaths, and created what historian William Blum called indisputably one of the most inhumane chapters of the 20th century. Such chapters could never have been written without permission from the home of the brave and its proxies. As Carl Bernstein summed up in the Rolling Stone article, from the agency's perspective, there is nothing untoward about such relationships, and any ethical questions are a matter for the journalistic profession to resolve, not the intelligence community. The moral of this story in 2022, if you believe anything a corporate-run U.S. media reports to this day, shame on you. It is long overdue that you rediscover the subversive pleasure of thinking for yourself by practicing some serious intellectual self-defense. I'll be right back with my story of the week. Since Carl Bernstein featured prominently in that last segment, my story is also going to feature Bernstein. You see, at the first ever gym job that I had at New York City's ritziest health club, Bernstein was a member and he regularly worked out with any trainer he could coerce into taking him for a session. Supposedly, he never paid the club for this service, a habit that reportedly got him into trouble at a downtown gym some years later. Talk about following the money. None of us trainers really ever wanted to work with Bernstein because he would rarely talk to us during the entire session. The only thing I can clearly remember him talking to us about was when he would crudely inquire about nearby female gym members. Anyway, Bernstein would walk up to the gym floor desk, and if it was me that was behind the desk, he would say, hey, Mickey, you got time? And usually I'd say, only if you tell me who Deep Throat is, and hey, it never failed to make him laugh. Now, many years later, Deep Throat's identity became known, and I wrote an article called Deep Throat as Sideshow. And in that article, I declared that Watergate, Deep Throat, Woodward, Bernstein, etc., were all smokescreens effectively obscuring the catalog of crime we call American history. I like to imagine that good old Carl came across that article while scrolling at a trendy coffee shop somewhere. Thank you for listening. Thank you so much for subscribing. And thank you for keeping your guard up.